welcome to Crime and Coffee. My name's Allison. And my name's Mike. And we're coming to you from a little suburb in Florida. Yeah, we are. And we're married. And um, we're here to talk about some crimes and go through some stories that appeal to us. And find out, um, you know, just, you know, really kind of some of the details and some of the, unfortunately, some gory details. I'm not really into all this gory stuff, but... um, And I'm fascinated by the gore. You are. Fascinated and horrified. Right, at the same time. Yes. Seems like a a, a genre that is dominated by a lot of female interests. So I don't know what it is. Maybe us men are afraid to get into a lot of this details and stuff like this. But all these crimes are committed by us men. Predominantly men, yes. I wonder why men are more turned off by the gory details. Like, I've always been fascinated by true true crime and death and serial killers. Um, just so fascinated to understand what makes somebody's mind the way it is. And then when I tell you about the stories, you're like, how how do you listen to that? Like it's just so sad. I try to surround myself with positive things, but there are lots of elements of true crimes where it is fascinating to get into the mindset of these people and where they even came from. Like it, you know, you and I are most likely not going to create. You know, do some kind of I would say 100% not well I can't say 100% for myself I mean unless it was self-defense yeah but um really what it comes down to is people who are fascinated with true crime they're also saddened by it too it's not to say that I'm not sad when I'm listening to it but you say how does it not affect your day and it just doesn't I know it exists it's out there it's terribly unfortunate but it's it's there and I'm just fascinated by the why yeah and it might be similar, like last night in bed, I was I was watching some YouTube and Reddit, and I was watching some fights, like real life fights of people just beating the shit out of each Whereas other. Whereas I can't watch that. Right. And that's, I can understand that. It's like, why would you want to put yourself through somebody getting beaten? Um, and you know, it was usually a bully getting their, what's, what's coming to them for the most part. So it was like a good thing, but yeah, you you don't like to see people getting beaten down. No, I can't stand it. Whereas, like, and then I put it in my head, like, but you like reading about murders and you know, yeah, people getting chopped up and finding out like all the details behind that. So that's interesting. But our goal is to pick a story a week. I um, mean, we're gonna go back and forth and see find one that interests both of us or one of us, and then kind of go over it and go over the details and and see what's what. So um, meanwhile, our kids are sleeping in the other room. We're just a standard Florida couple here. Um, We enjoy each other's company, I would say, for the most part. I would say so. And this podcast is also a reason for us to sit together quietly for, you know, maybe an hour while our puppy sleeps with our daughter. And, you know, we could have some peace and quiet and sip some coffee while we talk to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nothing wrong with that. It's kind of a date night. Exactly. For us. So thanks for listening to our date night. Uh, Anything else to cover? Not really. No, we're married almost 20 years. We've been together since we were age 16. Yeah. Um. So coming up on 25 years of being together. We're long 42 time. 42 now? Yeah, we're 42. Oh, gosh. We old. Yeah, my hips hurt. You know, I'm starting <laughs> to think about replacements. Um, no, you're not. Well, it's in my head. It's not like it's <laughs> happening imminently, but it's in my head. Well, I feel pretty damn good. Well, when I go on vacation, we're talking about going vacation places. It's like, should we go to Colorado and ski? Or am I going to be, you know, be held up for a while in traction? And, you know, I still got to work. <laughs> So, oh, yeah, but you still got to live. Yeah. So there's a balance. It doesn't yeah. have to be skiing, maybe hiking on like moderate trails. Yes. But I hate the idea to think, oh, we're 42. We can never ski again because we're old. No, we're not. Yeah. Well, I'll watch other people. So ski. we'll just wait and see. Yeah. And yeah. then you'll hop on board with me and we'll be down the slopes together. That's the safest and way. And you'll be just fine. Yeah. I'll just go on the bunny hills and be fine. <laughs> no worries there. Um, <laughs> the bunny hill. So what got me into this whole genre uh, was, was Mindhunter on Netflix. You remember that? Show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was about, you know, you remembered all these words or these names. I had to write them down. Ed Kemper, obviously Charles Manson, I know, and David Berkowitz. So I love the the mindset side. It was just so fascinating that these FBI people finally decided to sit down with these serial killers and think, okay, how do they think? Like, and profile them. And at the time, in the 70s, when this was going on, they were not understanding, like, why would you give a second to these pieces of shit monsters. Right. Whereas obviously it was a necessary thing to get to solve a crime. So I just think it's really fascinating to see where it all started. Right. And they did have a profile, you know, white male that had, didn't have a good relationship with his mother. And that's not all, every serial killer. And this, this podcast won't be about all serial killers or any for that matter, but just trying to get you know, my, my thought process process will be, you know, what happened? Why did this happen originally? And you know, that, that what brought them 
to this point. Right. And yeah, maybe some of the gory details, you can cover some of them for me. Well, I'm just covering the details. If there's gore there, it's the detail. What if I'm a little scared to go over it? Well, you're just going to be all right, okay? Okay. I'm going to be here with you. Okay. Supporting you. You hold my hand while I read them? No, you're too far away. Oh, yeah. Okay. We are (laughs) about six feet away. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll send my love through the wavelengths and we'll be just fine. Okay. Okay. I can do it. I can do it with your support. You can do it. So I'm going to be starting out this week with a story uh, you know nothing about because we're kind of just going to keep it from each other so that as we're telling it to you, you, you know, our other person it's is fresh. hearing it. It's fresh. Yeah. We're hearing it for the first time. I'm excited. Time. I get to I get to hear a story. Yeah, exactly. It's like story time. Yeah. So hop on board. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. So uh, you mentioned the serial killer aspect. This is actually a serial killer. Perfect. And he is one of the most notorious English serial killers. And his name is John George Haig. Okay. And he is also known as the Acid Bath Murderer. Mm-hmm. So kind of a gory little nickname there. Instantly reminds me of Breaking Bad. Um, yeah, ac- absolutely. You know, where they had to decompose the bodies and take the acid. I imagine this is the area it's going to. It is the area where it's going to, yes. Okay. This took place before ba- Breaking Bad. So um, George, I'm sorry, John, John George Haig was born in um, Stamford, Lincolnshire on July 24th, 1909. And his parents were John Roberts. So um, Stanford, Lincolnshire, that's like England. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I'm not very familiar. I've never been to the not UK, yet. but maybe yeah. someday. Okay. Um, so his parents were John Robert and Emily Hudson. He grew up in the village called Outwood, and it was in West Yorkshire. So um, his parents were very, very religious, and they belonged to a sect called the Plymouth Brethren. I think I'm saying that properly. Anytime you have the word brethren, there's it's something pretty serious. Yeah, so this church was very radical. They very much believed in the Bible and that you shouldn't have other forms of entertainment outside the Bible. Because God is supposed to be number one, basically. Yes. And, and, you know, that if, when you read, I've read the Bible, you know, back and forth, and uh, God's supposed to be your one you know, true thing. You're not supposed to uh, look at other idols as better than God. And maybe they were thinking if you get entertainment out of other things and you're looking at them better than God. Uh, yeah. Well, that it maybe would be distracting from God. And that would anger the brethren. Yes, it would. So basically you weren't supposed to read things that were, you know, other entertaining. Than a, entertaining. Yes. <laughs> you read the Bible or nothing. You don't go to sports events. You don't read magazines. You focus on your religion and keep that as the highest. Just wait to die. And then you go to heaven. Then you're fine. Then you're fine. Just don't have fun on earth. Don't have fun Outside here. of the Bible. Exactly. So um, there was a lot of fear instilled, too, in this religion. And, you know, John's father didn't help with this fear because he had a blue scar on his head. And he told his son that it was put there by the devil because he had sinned. And that if you sin, the scar will also appear on you and all will see that you are a sinner. So John grew up very fearful of this, of having this blue mark appear on his forehead that the world now knew I am a sinner. Well, I'll tell you what, he's sinning talking to his son because no devil put that on there. He put it on himself by doing something stupid, I would imagine. Well, sure. Or maybe it was just a birthmark or something like that. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Got it. But, um, you know, he knew that himself, I'm sure, and was lying to his child just to put the fear of God so that he kept him on the straight and narrow. And it was very isolating, too. He did not have very many friends because, again, that could be distracting. Um, There are stories that he built a 10-foot fence around their yard so that the outside sins would be kept away from their family. So just uh, 100% nut jobs. Just very isolating. Okay. Um, he, he described his childhood as bleak and lonely. Um, and, you know, it was just causing a lot of turmoil in his life. And to the point that he said he had recurring nightmares as He's he was growing up. basically in solitary confinement. I'm sure his parents weren't the warmest of people. Um, right. Probably always, you know, wondering and warning about different things because there's, you know, in, in heavy, heavy religions, there's a lot of guilt and things of that nature. And you just decide you're not good enough. So I'm sure that was a lot of stress on a little kid. And yeah, exactly. Up. And it wasn't that they were abusive. It was just more psychologically isolating sure. and just, you know, growing up with a lot of fear to the point that 
he is starting to have these reoccurring nightmares, according to his stories. And this nightmare as a child was about a forest of crucifixes that would turn into trees and drip with blood. He would see a man collecting the blood in a cup, but before he would see the man drink the blood, he would wake up. That was the dream he would continuously have as a child. And later, as an adult, when he was caught with the things that he did that I'll tell you about, um, he had told the police that these dreams made him believe that he needed blood to live. And it was widely reported that John's childhood ambition was to become a vampire. (laughs) You know, some children, they want to be police officers. They want to be astronauts, baseball players. Well, John, he wanted to be a vampire. That's cool. (laughs) It's different. To each their own. Uh Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, as he got older and, you know, a little bit more aware of what was going on in the world and his surroundings around age 10, 11, he started to see that he was doing things that were not so truthful and this blue mark was not appearing. So he was getting a little wise to his father's little jig there. Yeah. Well, you know, you start to say, well, you know, I lied and uh, so far no no blue mark, um, you know. I coveted my neighbor's wife because, you know, I don't get to see people, but I looked over this 10-foot fence and my neighbor's wife's kind of hot. And uh, yeah, so far, no blue mark. <laughs> but he was only 10 or 11, so maybe he wasn't admiring ah, the neighbor's wife. Okay. But he was reading things that maybe weren't in, you know, his un-pure. father's eye. Exactly, unpure. Mm-hmm. And beginning as he got older to push the rules a little bit more, a little bit more, and still no blue mark. So he was getting a little bit wise to the fact that maybe his, it was maybe one of two things. Maybe God just didn't care about him enough to put the blue mark there, or maybe his dad was lying to him. You know, one of the two things. Um, But, you know, either way, he started to become wise. So as he grew older, you know, he became into music. Some things said that his father pushed him into classical music and the piano. Others said that he actually enjoyed it. Um, He got a scholarship to his grammar school. And then he was also a choir boy at his church. And, um, you know, really, he was well spoken, well put together, wasn't an unruly child by any sense of you know the word but maybe in his parents eyes he was falling out of out of line a little bit but the funny thing is um the school where he had gotten the scholarship to which was queen elizabeth grammar school in wakefield um that same school also produced another serial killer oh happened to kill three people i wonder if they have up in their halls now i don't know maybe their pictures are there yeah do not become this person these people stephen griffiths was that student that also came from that school so then again like i said he moved on to be a choir boy at wakefield cathedral um a lot of people said he was very brainy but a bit of a loner which I think, you know, as you grow up secluded because of your parents, you don't really know how to interact with other children. So I think that was just a consequence of his upbringing. Um, But then as he finished school, he became apprenticed to a firm of motor engineers. That didn't work out so well. At age 21, they caught him dipping his fingers into the cash box. Mm -hmm. So he was quickly canned from that position. Still no blue mark from that? No, no blue mark. Okay. Stole the cash, no blue mark. Um, you know, like I said, he was well-groomed. He was confident and charming. He impressed many women too. He was kind of a ladies man. Mm. So as he was age 25, he met a woman named Beatrice, also called Betty, Betty Hammer. She was 21. Betty Hammer. Betty Hammer. That's, That's a, a name, one. right? Yeah, it is. Wow. I like it. Yeah. Like she could have been a wrestler or something. Yeah. She could have been a rapper. Yeah. Betty Hammer. Betty Hammer. What up? Here Coming we go. Coming to you from one, Yorkshire. Two. Check, check. <laughs> check, check. One, two. We're going to murder this crowd. <laughs> no, Betty was not a murderer. Right. Okay. So she just unfortunately fell into the, you know, charm of John. And at age 21 on her end, 25 on his end, they became married on July 6th, 1934. Word on the street was that they only knew each other for about four months before they got married. I think um, John was really in a hurry to want to get married so that he could get out of his parents' house Mm -hmm. and escape their oppressive, in his words, Mm -hmm. um, their oppressive household. So um, John and Betty got married and... It was very quick, and it didn't last long. Uh, During this time, his new adult life was now pressuring him to make money. You know, he's out of his parents' house. He's married. He's got to pay the bills. Exactly. He's got to provide. So, you know, he needed to make more money. So he decided to start his own business. 
And it wasn't necessarily the most honest business. He was forging uh, vehicle documents. You know, that was so much easier back in the day. Yeah, well, there wasn't the internet and, you yeah. know, all that. Checks the internet yeah. that can, like, check where you were. Tie and, you back to things. Yeah, exactly. Look at the history. Like, I was watching uh, Catch Me If You Can with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. And, like, it was so much easier to fake documents back then with checks and different passports and stuff. Whereas now it's like, you know, they scan something and you're not legit and you can't go. You're there. Yeah. yeah. There's so many things that, you know, pertain to that. So, um, despite the lack of internet, he was caught. And in 1934 of November, so just shortly thereafter getting married, he got married in July, this is November, he's now put into prison for 15 months. Well, Betty, at this point, found out that she was pregnant with their daughter. Ah, Beatrice, what are you going to do? Yeah, poor Beatrice, um, alone, pregnant, and, you know, questioning this relationship that she's kind of jumped into, and she didn't feel so good about it, so... She decided she was going to put their baby up for adoption and divorce John. So I think their marriage only lasted maybe four months. Jeez. Yeah. So it was pretty quick. And then in this time, his family also cut ties from him. He was an only child. So this is their only son. They're cutting ties. They don't want to be associated with this, you know. He's an embarrassment. Embarrassment. Yeah. To the brethren. Yeah. Um, So he's released from prison now. He's a newly single man. He started a dry cleaning business. So it's kind of funny. He goes from doing sketchy things and then jumping into a legit business. Well, it was becoming successful, but sadly, it didn't last very long. His business partner was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident, Mm. and that basically crumbled the business. So um, now we're in 1936. In his late 20s, he decides he's going to move to London. And in this time, he meets this man around his age. His name was William McSwan. And William McSwan, his um, parents were very wealthy. They owned a lot of amusement arcades, amusement parks. I think it was referred to as amusement arcades, which I think was like an amusement park. Yeah, different games and things. Yeah, exactly. So um, he meets William and his William's parents end up employing John. So John's doing various tasks for them and he's chauffeuring them. He's also um, repairing some of their arcade games and things like that because he kind of has like an engineerish background. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's doing this and he's getting closer to William. But at the same time, he's very jealous of William because William comes from a wealthy family and he sees the things that money can buy and the power it can give you. So, um, He's working for the McSwans, but at the same time, he's starting to move into shady dealings again. You know, he couldn't stay on the straight and narrow. So now he's working under a fake name. He's calling himself William Cato Adamson, and he's selling fraudulent stock shares from the estates of dead clients at below market rates. Hmm. So um, he's doing this, but he flubs up. And one of his clients, from one of the things I read, he had had letterhead and spelled one of the cities of his offices incorrectly. Mm. So the guy caught onto this, and lo and behold, he gets himself in trouble if again. You're selling bad stocks, you got to spell everything correct. Yeah, apparently the name of the city was uh, Guilford. No D there, but he placed a D. Mm. Guildford. Okay. So now he's age 28, and he's buying himself four years of prison time. So back in the slammer. So now he's got four years to to think about things and he's it's dawning on him that his biggest mistake is leaving his fraud victims alive in order to report these crimes that is the you know if you're going to commit a crime make sure everybody that sees it is dead yeah you don't want anyone snitching on you right even if they you know plead and beg and everything (laughs) get rid of them so four years will give you some time to cook up ways to dispose of your witness oh gosh yeah so um, he would spend his time in the prison library studying the work of a French murderer, Georges Soray. And George would uh, dissolve his victims in sulfuric acid. So this was very appealing to John. He thought, no body, no crime. I mean, it's a good thing to have education for our jail systems, but probably not education towards yeah. pre- committing other future crimes. <laughs> you would think they would try to shut the books on that. Right. You know, maybe do... Some Space. sort of, yeah. You know, other, or a potential job opportunities for when you get out of prison. Right, right. Different trades. And, yeah, just different trades and, and skills. Yeah, but not how to get rid of your victims. Right. Yeah, so he's realizing that this is actually something he could see himself doing because if you have no body, 
how could you be committed of a crime? True. So John begins using glass jars from the prison kitchen and he's bringing in dead field mice from, you know, his time outside at the, at the prison. So he's using small quantities of acid that he took from the Tinsman shop, which, I mean, I'm not quite sure why they're giving. Well, I'm a, luckily, I'm a master Tinsman. <laughs> Are so, you? Yeah, yeah, it's one of my little hobbies. Have and you been hiding this from me? Yeah. Well, you know, it's not something you talk about often. <laughs> it's not like you go to the bar and say, hey, guys, uh, my Tinsmanship has really been increasing this month. It's very pr- prolific. Yeah. So it turns out you probably need some hydrochloric or some kind of acids in order to, to shape and mold the tin, I would imagine, maybe. Um, Apparently, you do. Yeah, so I'm not an expert, but yeah, that's probably The something. acid was there in the Tinsman shop. Okay. And it was specific specifically sulfuric acid. Perfect. And so he's doing his own little experiments and putting the sulfuric acid in these glass jars and placing the field mice in them. No, if from like high school, sulfuric acid is nice because you can put it in glass or plastic and nothing, nothing happens. It's totally safe. I would think it would dissolve plastic. It, I don't think it does. Really? Yeah. I think it only dissolves bones and skin and, you know, soft tissue. Type Interesting. Stuff. Okay. So, well, he chose glass. Maybe okay. that's all he had available. Right. Yeah. That's pretty popular. Then. Uh, you know, things were limited supply wise yeah. at the prison. Yeah. So he, from one of the stories I had heard, there were three jars and he would do various experiments, see how quickly this small little field mouse would dissolve. And then he would think in his head how much quantity of acid and how much time would I need for on a much larger scale to make human porridge, say a human. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. So now he's released from prison. It's 1940. And quickly he landed himself back in jail another 21 months. I'm not entirely sure at this time. Oh, he was stealing. Somebody mentioned it was breaking and entering. Either way, bought himself another 21 months of jail time. So um, during this sentence, he's also trying to figure out ways of making a little income. So he and his select inmates would go to the mail room very quickly early in the morning when the mail would come in. And they would take some of the fellow prisoners' mails, your mail from their families, and basically sell it to them on like a ransom type of deal Mm -hmm. just to make some money. So quickly the prison finds out about this. They put the kibosh on it. But either way, he's always cooking up ways to make some cash. Stupid ways. Yeah. Very. He's one of those wants to get rich quick and not on on the honest way of doing it. So now he's released from this sentence and he became a salesman. For a firm in Crowley until 1944. Again, he bounces back from doing things honestly to doing things not so honestly. So now he's on the honest way. But now he's hanging out in the pub one night and he bumps into his previous employer, William. William McSwan. And um, he knows now that William is working for his parents, Donald and Amy. He's collecting rent from various tenants of the properties they own. And he sometimes does like a ride along with William and he sees how much money he's making collecting from his parents. And again, he's starting to become a little bit more jealous again. But either way, their friendship is rekindled. They're spending much more time together. He's spending time with his family, getting to know them more and more. Um. And so at this time, he had decided to rent a small basement workshop. And the address of the workshop was 79 Gloucester Road. This is where he decided he was going to work on his quote-unquote inventions. Hmm. I'm not entirely sure what, you know, these inventions were. But regardless... Well, he's um, a guy that's always thinking. He's, he's always an enterprising thinking, yes. mind. He's probably thinking of different things and different ways to make money. And that's, you know, needs, needs a place at 79 Gloucester to, to figure out all yeah, these Yeah, exactly. Things. So his workshop had been equipped with some 40-gallon drums, a rubber apron, some wellies, and a gas mask. Hmm. You know, those are some kind of sketchy things. I don't know what wellies are. Wellies are Wellingtons, the boat... Uh, the like waterproof like beef wellington like food <laughs> no okay the boots oh okay yeah, gotcha wellies. um you know it's pretty rainy over there in england so you got to protect those feet yeah um so you know during this time when he's got this basement workshop he's also gaining more and more of william's trust and they're hanging out one night it's september 9th 1944 and they decide to take a trip over to John's workshop. I don't know. Maybe William said, hey, or maybe John told William, come see some of my inventions. They, so he's in like his 40s at this time, probably. Um, You know. I mean, he was like 20 in the 30s, I think. So he's he's up in age. He's not like youngster. He's, he's like 30 something. Well, are you able to do some math? He was born in 1909. And this is 1944. 
Yeah, that's yeah. Thirties nineteen forty four minus nineteen oh nine, so thirty five. Okay, so John's about thirty five at this point. He brings William back to his basement workshop, and sadly, he decides to smash William's head in with a lead pipe. Probably from all that, just you know, he's probably talking about getting money from his parents and like, yeah, things are going pretty well, you know, at the old arcade, and uh, you know, my parents, oh, just look at this two thousand dollar check they just gave me, which at that point is fifty thousand dollars, and you know, this guy's just like, shit, I I can't do this, I hate this guy because he keeps on having this thing over me, and yeah, instead of just being jealous like most of us, decides to smash his head in. Exactly, he Ugh. took it a little too far. And, you know, I knew this guy was going to be the first victim. First, I thought maybe the the wife, you know, the wife that he was married to. But uh, now this guy, the jealousy. Yeah, it's the money. He's he's very driven by money. Yeah. So he sees this. He wants it. And he's going to take it no matter how he can. He does it. So he smashes poor William's head in. And in this time, he also says that he slit his throat, got a mug, took some of the blood from his neck. Oh, and, the vampire know, thing. The vampire thing is coming back. And when you're dead, your blood is not pumping. So you got to like kind of coerce the blood to like Ugh. a turn up, Ugh. get the blood to come into this mug. And he claims he drank this blood. So uh, after allegedly drinking this blood, he put William's body into a 40 gallon drum, covered it with sulfuric acid. And then he describes in his confession that when the body was finally submerged in the liquid acid, the fumes, you know, there was a lot of breakdown happening very quickly, bubbling. It's like a cauldron, you know, apparently the fumes were a little overwhelming to him. Some stories said he passed out and came to others said he just fled the building, went outside, got some fresh air. But, you know, your first time dissolving a human in sulfuric acid might be you might learn some things. Sure. Well, he learned that it was pretty toxic. Um, Didn't plan for that. No. He later covered the drum. He went home to sleep and left his former employee and friend to dissolve into liquid sludge. Um, Two days later, he took William's body, which had mostly dissolved into a thick black sludge and poured it down a drain in the road behind his workshop in the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, William is working for his parents. His parents are wondering, where the hell is William? Uh, William is no more. He's black porridge. Sadly, William is now black sludge. So, John, of course, needs to think of what to tell William's parents, Donald and Amy. So probably his, probably wasn't uh, thinking about this. All th- you know, I think it just kind of hit him. It seemed like a, a something that he wasn't planning necessarily that night. Right. Yeah. Maybe he was kind of um, learning as he went. Yeah, and he wa- he was kind of probably looking forward to this first victim just to figure out who it's going to be. And it's like, hey, hey, why not William here? The guy yeah. That, you know, makes me even though he's my friend. Yeah, it's uh, somebody I get pissed off about hearing all the stories, and I'm done listening to these stories. And who knows how planned it even was? Maybe that night they were just having pints in the pub and he said hmm maybe i should bring him down to my workshop and just do this yeah. who Ugh. knows yeah it's pretty disgusting so now he's got to figure out what to tell william's parents donald and amy so they fully well knew that his their son william did not want to go and be drafted to war world war ii was happening at this time he was very fearful of being drafted to the war So um, John took advantage of this and said that William had fled to Scotland to avoid being drafted and they bought it. And to reinforce the story, he would write them postcards and letters (laughs) posing as William. And uh, during this time, now Donald and Amy need somebody to cover William's work. Nice. Yeah. So now he's doing William's job. He's collecting the rent from the tenants, you know, covering the amusement parks, all that jazz. He also apparently is living in William's house. So basically just slid right into his life. Mm -hmm. Um, But now the war is coming to an end and Donald and Amy aren't understanding why William hasn't returned. Where is he? So John tells them he's coming home for the night secretly um please keep this under wraps he wants to see you guys one at a time you know he doesn't want to cause attention to this it's going to be at night he's coming to my workshop (laughs) so donald you're going to come first to see your son so john brings donald to the workshop and sadly the pretty much exact same thing happens to him that his son 
you know. Well, this is a flashback to, hey, you know what? It's not a crime if I kill everybody that's involved in it or knows about it. Exactly. He's erasing them bit by bit. Right. The problem is that you'll eventually have to erase everybody, probably. Anyone that's associated with that person. Right. You know, unless you're living under a cave, rock, or whatever, people know you. They're going to wonder, where the hell are they? And this is one of those instances where, you know, folks um, talking to you out there, if something just doesn't seem right, like it's like, well, why would my son come to visit late at night at a workshop? You know, right? It's sketchy. Pro- yeah. Odds are there's probably something up. So you right. know, question yourself. But, you know, he did leave the country to avoid being in the war. So maybe he wanted to keep sure. it under wraps. No, no. They they wanted to see their son so bad. I'm not calling, you know, I, right. I get it. But yeah. They were missing their son, desperate yeah. to see him. So Donald follows John over to his 79 Gloucester Road workshop and sadly meets the same fate that his Gosh. son met, which was being smashed in the head with a lead pipe. Wow, exact same. Exact same, yes. So, so he, dad's gone. Yeah, dad is now gone. He places Donald by... Oh, and I forgot to mention, he's changing up some of his supplies. At this point in time, he has a steel bathtub in his workshop. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily the 40-gallon drum, also now a steel bathtub. So he places him not in the bathtub, but near the bathtub. Now he goes to retrieve mother, Amy, and brings her to the workshop. Again, poor Amy gets smashed in the head with a lead pipe. Whether or not she came into the workshop and saw that her husband was there dead, we don't know. But either way, she, you know, got knocked in the head. Exactly. So now he is disposing of not one body, but two. So he thinks in his head, how can I get the acid to dissolve their bodies more quickly? Maybe if I chop them up. It'll go faster. Yeah, that makes sense. So he has this workbench in his shop. He takes them over to the table and begins to dismember their bodies and Mm -hmm. places them into the bathtub, covers them with sulfuric acid. I did read in one place that he also added hydrochloric acid. I don't know why. And the other thing was is that you couldn't easily obtain these things. So he had sketchy ways of doing that too. He pretended that he needed them for different things he was doing yeah you're not going to be able to get a, a ton of acid really right. safely through regular channels you know on amazon they're not going to just put a drum of sulfuric acid on your front porch on yeah. gloucester road right exactly <laughs> so he had certainly to do not it. prime two-day delivery <laughs> no especially not prime so he had to do that in sketchy ways but for whatever reason he also added the hydrochloric acid and their bodies were left to dissolve for a few days Um, during this time now, he's got to wrap up Donald and Amy's affairs. He's meeting with their landlady and telling them that the couple had moved to America. He had all their mail forwarded to him. He had Mr. McSwan's pension check. Now he's posing as William McSwan, who is sadly deceased. And he forged a power of attorney and made about six to eight thousand pounds selling their property. And from what I read, it's equivalent to about two hundred and fifty thousand pounds in twenty twenty. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Pounds. Oh, they're in England. Right. So what are pounds? I think it's pretty similar to. to I think so. Yeah. Um, so now he takes this money that he's made and moves into a very ritzy hotel, the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. By 1947, though, he's rapidly going through the money. Not only is the you know hotel he's staying in very expensive, but he's also developed a gambling habit. So he's now running out of this money, and he needs to find a way to get more. Is he going to do it a good way or a not-so-good way? Probably not-so-good way. Not-so-good way. So at this time, he no longer has his basement workshop on 79 Gloucester Road. He's moved to a new location where can, he can bring his new victims. He Things found, are on the up and up. Things are going well. The enterprise is running just as he thought. Exactly. So he's moved over to a small space outside of London. I actually saw, saw videos of this location. Uh. It was a little um, storefront type of place uh, on 2 Leopold Road in Crowley, Sussex. He moved all of his supplies to his new space, and he felt ready to go. And now at this point, he is pretending to show interest in a house that Dr. Archibald Henderson, who's age 52, and his uh, wife Rose, age 41, are selling. So he knows that this couple has a lot of money, and he's going to pretend that he's looking to buy their property. 
He also swindled his way into becoming his affable self and, you know. Uh, probably well known in the area a little bit, um, just based on having money and being at certain things. And yeah. And in this Onslow Court Hotel where he was staying, obviously it's expensive. There's a lot of ritzy people that are living there also. Yeah. You think somebody has a lot of money, so they're trustworthy. Exactly. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, in pretending to want to buy this property, he's also gaining their trust and friendship and they decide to have him at their housewarming party they want rose wanted him to play the piano for their guests so he's at their house he's at the party and he sees that they have a 38 caliber webley revolver and he decides to snatch it so he snatches the henderson's revolver and um on february 12th 1948 he drives mr mr henderson over to his new workshop under the guise of showing him a new invention He's, you know, trying to entice Mr. Henderson into thinking maybe they can partner together in a business opportunity. So that was the ruse that he used to get Mr. Henderson over to this small little workshop. So on arrival, he takes Mr. Henderson's own gun that he snatched from his house and shot him. Oh, man. So he's moved now from, you know, his first three victims were a lead pipe. Now he's using a revolver. No, it's uh, the the first ones. I I get it. I mean, I don't get it. It's I get his his reasoning, his fucked up reasoning, that he's you know trying to just get rid of the evidence and get rid of people that would be looking for people. Now this one, it's like he's running out of money, so he's got to find other victims to get money from. I don't. You know, it, it's this one. You know, it's almost like a friend. Like maybe he's he's against having friends maybe because of his isolation in the past and anybody who gets close to him is all of a sudden, you know, well, clearly he wasn't, you know, mentally close to these people because how can you hurt your friend, you know, but uh, maybe the fact that he was raised not having friendships, he doesn't maybe know how to have a friend. Yeah. Cause you don't kill your friend. I've come to find that. And he's so money hungry. That's that's the motivation right. behind everything. I think he's so blinded by wanting this lavish lifestyle that he doesn't care what he needs to do to, do to get it. Okay. So he shoots poor Mr. Henderson in the back of the neck. Old or Archibald. Head. Poor Archibald. He kills him instantly, strips him of any valuables he might be having on his person, mm. and basically just leaves him there. And he decides to skip a step. He doesn't dismember him. Now, of course, he needs to worry about Rose because Rose is going to wonder where her husband has gotten to. Yep. So time to move on to poor Rose. So um, he tells Rose that Mr. Henderson had fallen ill and that she needs to come to the workshop to assist. Mm -hmm. So he brings Rose to the workshop. And again, same thing. Gun. Gun. Yep. So he places her in a drum of sulfuric acid. He places Mr. Henderson in a drum of sulfuric acid. Again, he strips her of any kind of valuables she might have, whether it be rings, whatever, or jewel, whatever kind of jewelry. And now, of course, he's back in the same position where he was before. I've got to inform people that are tied to these the folks. estate and everything. Yeah, and also family members who might be wondering where they are. Forge, forge the new power of attorney. <clears throat> exactly. So again, though, he leaves their bodies to dissolve. He empties it in the yard, which in this case, I had watched a YouTube video where this one was, you know, there were properties right there nearby. So, you know, he would do everything in the middle of the night so that people weren't there to witness him. But there's not really many places to pour this acid. Any drain, I guess. Yeah, but in this case, he didn't do a drain. He poured it in the backyard of That's two Leopold Road. Ridiculous. And I, I, guess, remember, I guess maybe, you know, back in there, the day, there probably wasn't a ton of drains. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But his Especially first workshop, he would play. He would put it in a drain, a manhole. Yeah. But in this case, he just dumped it in the yard. And I remember he would put it in the backyard of like a neighbor's hedges. And that neighbor couldn't understand why his hedges were dying. That's like uh, so poor. Careless, planning. right? Yeah. Dig a hole and then put it underneath the ground or yeah. something. So I think at this time, he was just getting sloppy. Yeah. Well, I guess he was sloppy all along, but so anyway, now he needs to figure out, you know, what to do about the Hendersons and their people. So Rose's brother is sniffing around and uh, he's prepared to go to the police at this point, but 
he John decides to lie and say that the Hendersons fled to South Africa because Mr. Henderson had done an illegal abortion and needed to get away. <laughs> so that was, you know, his protective cover there. Wow. But um, again, he's selling their properties and possessions. He acquired about 8,000 pounds at this time. Um, and, you know, now he's back to living comfortably at the Onslow Court Hotel. And... Now at this point we had just, we had said how old was John? Thirty five. Okay, yeah. So now he's in his late thirties, and the money from from the Hendersons is only lasting about a year. So now he's moving on to his next and final victim. Well, because he couldn't inherit the state because that son was still there. So it I'm was sure he um, inherited it. a brother, Rose's or, brother. Oh, the brother. Okay, yeah. so they still had some some people, and he probably wasn't able to do the same power of attorney stuff. And yeah, you know, right. So, so he only got to sell what they had on them, and maybe some on some checks and cash that they had in the house. Yeah, so he did um, get 8000 from them. Yeah. But it did say he did sell their properties and possessions, oh, so wow. I don't know. Okay. Um, but So now he's moving on to his last, last and final victim. Um, again, he's living in the Onslow Court Hotel. There's a lot of rich people there. John is very good at looking at the part. He is well put together, well-dressed, people like him and also he's a lot younger than the other people that are living in this hotel because they're old money you know probably more in their 60s or so he's only in his late 30s they're very intrigued by him yeah he's the affable guy and like hey how'd you make your money he can make up any story that he wants oh you know he did the arcade thing for a bit and then you know whatever this and that and yeah the big stories that everybody's just listening to every word because they're living vicariously through him and he loves this sure you know he wants to be the rich guy hence the reason why he's done all the things that he's done oh we need to set you up with our daughters you know yeah exactly so he's you know having dinners with a woman named olive duran deacon she's 69 years old she was a wealthy widow of a solicitor john duran deacon and again, fellow resident of the Onslow Court Hotel, she uh, she had lived in the hotel for about six years, and he had lived there for four years at this time. So they'd known each other for four years at this point, and you get to trusting people. So during their dinners, when they'd be chatting and whatnot, Olive had told John that she kind of re- was thinking of her own invention. She was trying to come up with an idea of like acrylic nails. And she knew that John had considered himself an inventor, a businessman, whatever. Deals with chemicals. Yeah. So, of course, now they're talking about putting a business together. And she, uh, he tells her, well, come on down to my workshop and we'll, we'll talk. We'll go over this paperwork. So, sadly, this happened on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Um, Olive had told John again about these artificial fingernails. They hope they could improve their idea and make it marketable. So John invites Olive to Leopold Road and they go. Well, actually, that conversation happened on Valentine's Day. They didn't actually go to the workshop until February 18th, 1949. He brings Olive down to the workshop and shot her in the back of the neck with a revolver. Again, same revolver that he had stolen and shot the Hendersons. Um, Well, that's been pretty useful revolver. Exactly. Um, He strips her of her valuables, including a Persian lamb coat that she had been wearing, and then he placed her into an acid bath, just like he had all of his other victims. Um, In this time, he had gotten some blood on her Persian coat, so he decided to also take that to the dry cleaner, have it cleaned. Um, Because Lord knows you don't want blood on your Persian coat. No. So, of course... Um, Miss Olive Duran Deacon is living in this hotel amongst many other people. Yep. So where the hell did she go? Right. Of course, people are going to wonder. And again, how was he so like silly to think no one would notice her missing? I think it it starts to become more and more of a game where they almost want to be caught and they're daring, you know, doing more and more daring and stupid things on their part to, to be caught. Right. Until it's too late. And And this was considered a much less thought out and hurried murder. Mm -hmm. But regardless, he pops Olive into the 40 drum gallon and goes and has a three course meal back at the hotel. Um, So, of course, the people that live in the hotel are wondering, where is she? And one person in particular was close to Olive. This is Mrs. Constant Lane. 
She was a retired woman, just like Olive. She was living at the hotel. She's deeply concerned. And she knew that Olive was going with John. So she said to him, don't you know where she is? She told me that you were taking her down to your factory. I must do something about that. So John thinks, hmm, if I go with her to the police, maybe I'll look more trustworthy because what person who killed someone would go to the police? You know, that would just be silly. So he and Miss Constant Lane go down to the police and something about him just didn't sit well with one of the police people. And so on, um, let me get my, my bearings here. So this is uh, policewoman Sergeant Lamborn. She was immediately suspicious. So on that, that Monday, Scotland Yard's record office was contacted and John's criminal record was revealed. And she saw he had been in prison multiple times. He was not a trustworthy person. He was capable of doing very shady things. So her antenna went up and she just she didn't like the sniffs of John. So on February 26th. So he was using his regular name. Yes, okay. he was never changing his name at this point. Got it. Yeah. The only time he changed his name was when he was um, doing the whatever dealings of the dead people, right. that, their properties and whatnot. Yep. So on Saturday, February 26th, the police visited John's workshop. And basically, they just busted through the door and, and went in. And there they discovered the scene. You know, the jig is up. The jig is up, definitely. Wow, good there's, for her these gallon drums there's the bathtub they're seeing these rubber aprons and gas masks and they also found a lot of other things they found a revolver the 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 revolver the henderson's revolver that killed three people we're just going to attach him to the henderson's exactly they also found the dry cleaning bill because you know he had taken olive's coat to be cleaned um which never looks good so the dumbass like boiled the hendersons but not their gun that's like the evidence that you needed to not be attached to that well he still needed that gun right well you can buy a gun i mean yeah yeah no he wasn't going to do that he had a free gun in his hands he was just going to continue to go about his stupidity and selfish ways and think that he was invincible i think it was this idea that he was not going to get caught yeah um, I think he truly believed that because he was dissolving these people, he was not going to get ca- caught. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, he was. So at 4.15 p.m. on Monday, February 28th, Detective Inspector Albert Webb waited for John to return to Onslow Court. He took John to the police station and John confessed. He stated, I have destroyed her with acid. He didn't say them. He said her, meaning Olive. Yeah. And you will find her in the sludge that remains at Leopold Road. Every trace has gone. And how can you prove a murder if there is no body? Well, dumbass, you just admitted to doing it. <laughs> right. We don't have to. You just did. <laughs> exactly. And um, anyway, so Tuesday, March 1st, a pathologist, Dr. Keith Simpson, went to John's workshop and immediately... They had seen a very incriminating thing. There's blood stains on the walls. Um, there's a hat pin at the bottom of one of the 45-gallon drums that belongs to somebody. They also saw a few gallstones in the yard. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess those don't dissolve. Didn't disintegrate, yeah. Because if you think about it, there's a lot of acid going on in our own digestive tract, and they don't dissolve. But yeah. regardless, I don't know what a gallstone looks like, but they saw them. Um, they saw a, they found a, a full list of collections that they found. It was processed and produced a list that included a, tw- a 28 pounds of, they said animal fat. Obviously, it was human fat. Um, part of a foot. So not everything part. was dissolved. But at this point, there's no DNA testing. In the no, 40s. definitely not. Um, there were two more gallstones, a full set of dentures. These were taken to Olive's dentist, and he confirmed, yes, these were Olive's dentures. So dumbass doesn't, like you're dumping out this drum, and dentures are popping out, and you think, oh, that's fine. leave these in the yard. Throw some dirt on it. Yeah. Yeah. So his fate was sealed. They also found pieces of pelvic bone, two discs from her lower spine, a handbag, a lipstick container, and a notebook. So um, this now Sloppy. led them to believe, okay, it's not just Olive that's 
this has been done to. So it, you know, it starts to come, come out that there's other people involved. So John is now charged with Olive's murder on March 2nd and taken to the Luz prison. Trial began July 18th, 1949, and it took the jury all of 17 minutes to find him guilty. <laughs> well, I mean, anytime the murderer is saying, I did this, and I <laughs> dissolved her and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. But he was also hoping that he could be found insane. So he tried to pull that card. Um, it's definitely a possibility. Yeah, he was talking about the blood, drinking, and he did a, some crazy crazy things while he was in prison. I guess he was drinking his own urine at one point. Like, hey, look at me. I'm the crazy guy. <laughs> look, I can piss in my mouth. I pissed in my mouth. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> hey, guys. I drink my own urine. I'm yeah. John. Yeah. <laughs> I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Well, that did not happen. They found him guilty and not to be insane. Um, and I guess right before his execution, um, Madame Tussauds, is that how it was pronounced? Yep. We we all know Madame Tussauds, right, Mike? Uh, yeah. And before this <laughs> podcast, you said, is that how you, you pronounce the, the wax person? I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> you know about. those wax people. I've heard of Madame Tussauds. You know, Madame Tussauds. Tussauds. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, she wanted to put uh, form John as one of her wax people. I guess she has a lot of um, criminal people that she uh. puts into wax figurines. And he was more than happy. He had her come on down and... He was very particular about his wishes. He wanted him to look this way, his hair to be parted that way. And here's my clothes. Put my wax sculpture in these clothes. And actually, she did. So his his statue is there. With his real clothes. Yes, with his actual clothes. It's kind of fascinating. I mean, you, it sucks that you, know, you don't want to look at a person like that. You're not looking up to them. No, not in them. any way, shape, or form. It's historical, you know, to some extent. Yep, exactly. But on Wednesday, the 10th of August... Uh, in about a crowd of 500 people that ga- gathered outside the prison. Um, yeah. Yes. Almost 40s here. Yes. Yep. Um, they all gathered outside the prison, and at 9 a.m., he was hung. Hung? Yeah. Wow. Good. So that's the story. Jeez. See, now, these, those are the, uh, those are the situations where, you know, the death sentence makes sense. You know, like we, you and I were talking about some stuff where it's like, if there's any shred of doubt that somebody may not have done something, right. you know, probably not the best time for the death sentence. But this guy is saying, yes, I boiled her and uh, here's the revolver. And like, you know, you've got you know, blood on his hands and in his workshop and right. all those things. I mean, this guy, I'm not a, you know, I, I don't know about taking lives and stuff, but this guy definitely needed to not be here anymore because then otherwise he'd go to jail and learn other methods of doing other things and maybe you know researching how to get out of jail and kill this guy's just such a scumbag so in addition to the six people that he knowingly killed he also claimed to have killed three other people Mm. they couldn't really prove that this was the case and maybe at this point in time he wanted more fame and attention so Maybe he lied about doing it. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. Maybe he lied about drinking blood. Maybe he did. Yeah. But regardless, he knowingly killed six people, three by blunt force trauma and three by gunshots wound. Wow. So that is the story of John George Haig. Wow. That's uh, that's unfortunate. I think you did a fine job. Thank you. It's, you know, my first time you, you learn things as you go. Yeah. Yeah, you sure do. That's uh, I'm, I've got uh, some big shoes to fill. I don't know. My shoes are smaller than yours. They so. are. They are. So maybe I don't. Yeah. yeah. It'll be fine. I think you're going to do great, too. And I look forward to next week when we hear whatever story that you come up with. Yeah. I just hope I don't have PTSD from this whole thing. You're going to be fine. And yeah. again, you can lay your head on my bosom and I will comfort you. Ooh, hey, that's that's <laughs> enticing. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. That makes me look forward to that. So thank you all for being here and listening to our very first episode of Crime and Coffee. And we hope to see you back next time. Next week. Hey. Toodles. Bye.